Okay, well, I googled anime hands, tomato, and I'm only finding tutorials. Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please, because, well, why not? Today, we'll be looking at 2.6, Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, number 120, slash History 376, Women, Food, and American Culture, which was originally posted on January 7th, 2015. I'm Secret... And I'm joined by... Tomato! Hello. Hey, Tomato. How's it going? Oh, man. It's hot. How's it going over there? Uh, it's fine. It's okay. It's rainy. It's cold. Anyway, tell me about this comic. All right. In a vlog, Biddy explains that while he doesn't usually dish about school, this semester he talked his way into a senior history seminar. And what's more... Jack is also in the class. Their final grade is 40% baking, and Biddy is offered to help him with it. As they bake together in the house kitchen, Jack talks about his NHL options, and Biddy very nearly tells Jack his ass is huge before dousing him with flour. Jack explains that he might consider slumming it on an expansion team because Kent, or rather, the Las Vegas Aces, won the Stanley Cup a couple years ago. The speech bubbles fade out and Biddy's vlog narration comes back in over a gauzy image of Jack staring out the window as Biddy confesses to his viewers that he's got a crush on Jack. Dun dun dun! It's here, everybody. It's here. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> ugh. Surprise last minute addition to our outline, as Ngozi notes in the blog post for this strip, uh, yeah, this is a real course at Yale. It is called the same thing, except Ngozi added the word American. And in fact, WGSS120 is the course code for it at Yale. So I think she made up the history part so she could you know, explain why Jack was taking it. She didn't try very hard to make up a new course. She really pretty much just copied one that already exists. And the one that already exists is taught by somebody named Maria Trumpler, who is the director of the Office for LGBTQ Services at Yale. And she is not a professor. She is an instructor who has this other position and just happens to teach this course, which is very popular, I guess. She has... WGSS120 in her Twitter bio. I also found her New York Times wedding announcement from 2009 when she married another Lady Yale professor. So that's cool. <laughs> that's very, uh, very bougie. Anyway, there's also a, a Yale University like library resources page for this course specifically. One of the sample assignments is Write a five-page paper in which you analyze your cookbook as a work of literature, focusing on the ways the author conveys cultural ideas around food preparation at that time and place. So this sounds pretty much like a blow-off course, right? Five-page paper, analyzing a cookbook? All right. I mean, there are things to be said about cookbooks. Like, obviously, yes, this is like a real genre of writing that's worth looking into because in cookbooks you can see perspectives and ideas and experiences which aren't necessarily exposed and explored in other kinds of books like this is actually a pretty interesting genre of writing for me but five page paper where you're like I don't know like 
Betty Crocker shows that housewives in the 1950s really wanted to sugarcoat their husbands so that they didn't have to have sex later. Like, I don't know. Yeah, this doesn't seem like a particularly rigorous course. I also will say, I don't know Yale's numbering system. My guess from the five-page paper assignment is that it's probably not an exclusive senior year seminar. Yeah, I, I looked at a couple of course listings for the women's gender and sexuality studies department at Yale, and it starts at zero, and then one is the next one. So... Yeah, most places that would indicate a class that you'd be taking as like a freshman or a sophomore. The 326 for history indicates that maybe it's more like a junior, senior level course. So I guess it's hard for history majors, but easy for sex and gender studies. I'm curious about that. I mean, I think the first time I read this, I was like, oh, those are college course numbers. Got it. And then didn't think about it any further, you know. But that is actually really interesting. Like, (laughs) how do you manage that? Do you just grade all the history people more harshly? I guess you could actually, in the same way that you might, if you have multiple levels of student in the class, like graduate and undergraduate students in the same class, you might give different assignments or something to different kinds of students. But it's it's pretty weird. Well, it's also obvious from this particular comic that, at least in the Samwell version, that's not what's happening. Uh, Jack oh. and Betty had the same assignment. Food history is a real thing. Like, it's a, that's a, a real sub-discipline. And it's pretty interesting. And there is a long, fascinating historiography of the topic that I'm not going to get into here. But, like, yeah, I mean, I, I fucking love cookbooks. They're awesome. And, yes, obviously, if you look at any work that's produced in a certain context, which is every work, you can basically tell things about what was going on in the context based on the work and vice versa. So yeah, I mean, cookbooks are a perfectly legitimate thing to, to analyze, but it doesn't sound like a really rigorous research paper. It sounds kind of like a blow-off course. And you know what's funny is that it also sounds like a blow-off course in the comic given the assignment that they have to get up to. Yeah, so in terms of Biddy bribing his way into this course specifically, in some ways, I guess this is sort of like a reasonable description of how things work in American universities. And in other ways, it's kind of like, I don't really know that school works like this. So having taught at the university level and also having obviously like studied at the university level, I feel like it's completely okay and totally cool to basically talk a teacher into letting you into a course. I think the idea of bribing Alice Attlee, that's the name of the woman who's teaching this course in the comic, who will later become Biddy's advisor, not that any of that is important, is, you know, cute, I guess. The fact that, like, oh, Biddy brings this woman a pie and she's a little bit, I don't know, presumably charmed by him is, okay, it's like, that's in keeping with check, please. But in general, it's like, yeah, if you're teaching a course that has within the online enrollment system some kind of enrollment cap and you're able to override to let students in, Yeah, I mean, in general, the kinds of students you want to be teaching are students who are really enthusiastic and want to be there, and they're going to, like, put the effort in. So demonstrating that you're into it is important. And 
in every school that I've gone to, the idea that if you want to get into a class off the wait list or otherwise, you write to the teacher, you meet with the teacher, you show up to the class, regardless of whether or not you've been let into it to sort of demonstrate that you're interested. You don't wait to be let into the class, you start attending the class and doing the work with the expectation that if you demonstrate that you're willing to do it, you'll later be let into the class. Like that's pretty much how it functions. So yeah, I, I mean, I think Biddy's strategy here is like pretty much in keeping with how a lot of stuff at school tends to work. This is one of those things where I am fine with it, even if it's a little ridiculous. Like if someone actually showed up to a professor's office, not only with a can-do attitude and a request for, you know, an ad override, but also with a pie. Yeah, the professor probably would be like, what? Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't think Biddy's doing anything crazy here. I do think that it's like in keeping with Biddy a bit more, with a bit more flair than many people might try to get into a class, right? Well, it's also sort of like, I get the sense from the way that Biddy talks about it here, like, ah, I got myself into this course based on the strength of my baking abilities. And it's like, no, this is like how it fucking works. Like any student who was like really enthusiastic probably could have gotten in. Yeah, exactly. Th that's what I mean. I mean, like, but I'm, I'm okay with that because it, it fits with the characterization of Biddy we've seen thus far, right? And it, it, this strip actually informs some of the ways that I feel about Biddy and how he tries to get what he wants, right? And I think that this is like an interesting strip to look at because Biddy is going into the system which already exists. He can navigate through perfectly well. He does essentially more or less what he's supposed to do in order to navigate it well. And then he takes credit for it. Like, that's interesting. Yeah, then he basically acts like he's special for having done the basics. Yeah, exactly. I also want to just briefly draw attention to the look on Alice Atley's face when he, when Biddy presents her the pie. As you noted when I was like, oh, this look on her face really informs how I experience the way that other people at Samwell think about the Samwell men's hockey team. Because she becomes his advisor, you know, she, she ends up on Biddy's side, as does everybody, you know, in the entire universe. But there's something about her look here as Biddy hands her the pie and she's just like, what? <laughs> there's something about the look on her face which I find really funny. It's not upset or anything. It's just sort of bemused, I guess, maybe is the look. But it's so different from the utterly immediately charmed way that, that people on Samwell Hockey respond to Biddy that I, that I think is pretty funny. Like, I just get a kick out of it. A little bit more about how college works in the U.S. I don't think we need to talk about this for too long, but the main reason why you would cap a seminar course like this or in restrict in enrollment is basically to either manage the instructor's workload because the room that the course is booked into is because it just doesn't have that much physical capacity at schools that have not that many rooms and a lot of courses going on that actually is an issue because there are legal regulations about how many people you can fit into a room. And then the final reason I think is that a class might have prerequisites. So if it's a really advanced level class, you will have either need to have passed the intro level classes that lead up to it or passed out of them through, I don't know, taking standardized tests or something. So 
I kind of feel like the terminology of something being a senior seminar here might be a bit like colloquial, like it's a class that seniors usually end up in because it's a class that has a cap on how many people can enroll in it. And of course, if it's a popular class, especially if it's like a blow off class on like a kind of fun topic that's not fully academic seeming, then seniors are going to have the highest priority when it comes to registration. They're going to get like their first pick of classes. And so seniors end up in the class by default, rather than it being only seniors get to take this class. And of course, that makes a lot of sense because seniors are presumably graduating, if not this semester, then at the end of next semester. So they have fewer chances to like take the course in the future. Whereas Biddy could have taken this course his junior or senior year, presuming it was offered then, but there's nothing in the comic to indicate that it wouldn't have been. So, you know, unless Biddy's like taking a spot away from somebody else, then yeah, I mean, it's basically up to the, up to the teacher if you can legally fit the correct number of students in the room to like override the enrollment system and let in as many people as you feel like grading, advising, scheduling for presentations, which take away your lecture and discussion time, etc. Yeah, fascinating. You can tell that I've like been to school too much. You did also bring up that baking or just making a recipe being nearly half the grade is, and I quote, top level OMGCP bullshit, end quote. And I think that's true. I'll just make the point. I could actually see a version of this, like making a recipe being worth 10 or 20% of a grade as long as it came with a writing component in like a super entry level history seminar or something like that. I will note for undergraduate, I went to a school with a strong agricultural and food science program. So actually like working kitchens that students could have access to if they belonged to a course which got them access to the kitchen was available. 40% is a lot. That's like a big chunk of the grade, especially if they've had like, you know, smaller writing assignments and especially considering that shit like attendance and participation are probably also part of the grade. Who knows if they have exams? It's not like there's a fucking syllabus for this course. I've never been to a school that had kitchens with equipment that students could use like this. Dorms had kitchens, but they didn't come stocked and you basically had to bring everything yourself. And I feel like teachers usually avoid making assignments where students don't have equal access across the board to everything they need to complete assignments. So if you're at a school and you're asked to do an assignment where you have to avail yourself of resources at the school that are equally available to everybody, then that's okay. And part of the assignment, the assignment is therefore like figuring out how you're going to get it done, but it's completely doable, like where you're located. This is something where Biddy happens to be a baking enthusiast, and he happens to live in a place where he has a fully stocked kitchen. Most students probably don't. And my guess is even if, you know, obviously Biddy talks about the kitchens are open in one of the first strips. Actually, I think it's the first strip. But my guess is the kitchen in his freshman dorm didn't have, like, equipment in it. It was just literally a kitchen that you could use, but it was like BYO everything. 
Yeah, I mean, that was also my experience with the dorm kitchens. And to be clear, like, just because my school had equipment doesn't mean that it was equally accessible to everyone all the time. There were priority for people in food science classes. I've also like been in school too much. So, but logistically the teacher could have worked out a deal with another department in order to get students access to like certain amounts of equipment at certain times they would sign up for it or something like that. Right. So you could make the argument that it, that you could build a class around a component like this. But that aside, the logistics aside of how like insane that would be, because that would be a lot of logistical work that makes me exhausted just thinking about it. The idea that it would be worth 40% of your grade to like make a recipe is just crazy, especially for a senior seminar. That's the part that is just bananas. Senior seminars, or at least senior level classes, whatever, whatever kind of class they might be, the whole point is to synthesize the work that you've done earlier in your college career, learning how to research, learning how to do particular academic skills, and synthesizing that into some kind of project, usually writing-based if you're in an arts and humanities kind of class, like this one. So to suggest that 40% of their grade is like making pie is, or whatever, right? Whatever recipe is just like crazy. Obviously, it's fun, cute rom-com shenanigans or whatever. And you know what? Fine, I like a rom-com, go ahead okay but it's a little bullshit so like from a teaching perspective when you give people an assignment like this you're basically like asking people not to do it or not to do it well if you aren't assured that the students have the resources like right in front of them then you're basically asking them to like just not do it yeah totally this is the kind of thing that like a department head would probably just like ask but yeah, in terms of the way that something like this works, like it's a blow-off class. Instead of three sessions of lecturing or three sessions of like having to lead discussions or grading 20-page research papers from all of the students, this woman just has to like listen to Jack be like, I made hardtack or whatever, instead of having to actually prep classroom materials or teach. And it's a completely defensible strategy. Something else I noticed is on that little page where Jack wrote down that this is worth 40% of the grade. He also wrote down that the assignment is due November 22nd. Uh, Give me a minute to look at the calendar for 2014. When was that? Who can remember? (laughs) So I believe that was, is Thanksgiving the last Thursday or the... Okay, every single year I think it's the third Thursday, but I think it's the fourth Thursday. I actually think it's not the third Thursday, and that's a lie I told myself when I was six and I've never forgotten, but I think it's the fourth Thursday. Anyway, here's the deal. This assignment was due before Thanksgiving 2014, which means that the final for this class, this class was over weeks before the semester ended. To be fair, he says part of the final grade. And like, listen, listen, listen. Okay, even in the college classroom, experiential learning can be useful. And like, I guess you can make the argument that if they make this thing and then they write about it, they're making some kind of understanding about how food and culture are intertwined, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure, okay. You could like make a syllabus out of this bizarre schedule. However, I don't think Ngozi thought this much about this. So, you know, it's maybe understandable that this college uh, class doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Like as a teacher, as a student, it doesn't make any sense. 
And you know what? So few, so few things about romance do. So I guess, you know, it's just in keeping with the genre. I don't know. I'm just presuming that she's not grading people based on like skill level. Like well, she couldn't be, right? Like you couldn't be like, oh, your pie has a beautiful burnished edge, A plus. Your hard tack is unchewable. <laughs> F, you know? I don't love these Johnny cakes, Jack. <laughs> oh my god. One time, okay, I have a story to tell about French Canadian food. <clears throat> this is unrelated to anything, I'm sorry, but I think it's funny. And I would like you all to imagine Jack in this problem. Once upon a time, I was living in France, and I was talking about a French-Canadian dish I had made with a French-Canadian friend who was also living in France. And the name of this dish was plug, P-L-O-G-U-E. But my dumb American mouth can't say that properly. So when I told a French coworker what we had made, she thought I said plug, which is the French word for a butt plug. So that was like a really exciting afternoon. And I would like you all to imagine some sort of fanfic coming out of this opportunity. Thank you. Anyway, the point is Dr. Atley is not impressed by Jack's plug. So apparently they have plug at Pierre Cochon, which is a well-regarded restaurant in Montreal. And according to, I don't know, some, some idiot's food blog, it's buckwheat pancake potato, cheddar, Fried egg, thick-cut Canadian bacon, and foie gras covered in maple syrup reduction. Well, that sounds fancier than the plug I made. But yeah, they're pretty good, everybody. Like, make them. They're delicious. I feel like I had this when I ate at this restaurant. But to be honest, I can't remember. I've never been there, so I don't know. Ugh, it was re- you wouldn't enjoy this restaurant. They had Japanese, like, bidet toilets in the bathroom. That's a lot. Okay, well... I really do think this would be a great setting for Jack Zimmerman fanfic. Anyway, all right, let's 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 stop talking about Jack Zimmerman's plug and move on to discussing more important things, as if there could be anything more important than that. But Jack says, Kent, I mean the aces. So we have a continuation of the existence of this character being sort of like laced into the comic like just a little bit of backstory being embroidered on it and interestingly enough at the very end of the blog post when Ngozi says what the next strip is she puts in hashtag parse now I have no idea if anybody at this point will know what parse means like we know that kent parson is coming but the fact that like parse specifically is kent parson i don't know but yeah i mean obviously it's like it, this is foreshadowing pretty much and it's very subtle because it appears in this like speech bubble that's like nearly transparent because biddy's not listening although he should have been and if he had been he wouldn't have been surprised in the next comic i think what's interesting about parse and the way that he's threaded through this year is that this is one of her most successful writing projects. Like it's one of the most successful parts of the comic is how subtly and interestingly this character is laid into the foundation of of Jack's backstory and then spoilers everybody, he's gonna show up. So it's too bad that everything happened the way it happened because this is like when her writing started getting really tight and interesting and well done. Throwing his name into a transparent speech bubble is so smart. It's such a good use of the medium. It's such an interesting way to show something about Jack and also something about Biddy and also something about their developing relationship. It's so good writing wise. 
and uh, it goes nowhere. This just like it all ends in Ken, you know, shoving his face full of humble pie, but uh, literally. But it's such a good and interesting way to create a tension between these three characters. Why do you think Jack corrects himself? Why does he back off from saying Kent? I mean, I have to assume it's like a defense mechanism, right? Like he isn't allowing himself to seem obsessed with this guy, although like maybe he still is, seems possible. I think also, although Biddy doesn't know who the fuck Kent Parson is, like a lot of people do know who Kent Parson is. And I would imagine a lot of people know at least some part of Jack's history with Kent. And so this must be a habit, I would guess, of Jack's in order to try to prevent too much investigation by anybody into this very tender point. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Wait, <laughs> I would like to read secret added a note underneath my note about why Jack corrects himself with Kent, whose dick I will commence to suck in the next update. And you know, it's true. Imagine him saying that in his, his beautiful accent, Kent, whose dick I will uh, suck in the next uh, update. So here's the thing. Uh, do I think that Jackson Roman sucks a lot of dicks? Yes, obviously. Like, it's, what else are we doing here? If not, we believe in that. But I can't imagine him saying things like suck or dick. Like, I just, something, something about him, it seems like, I just, it, it's hard to imagine him saying anything like sexual. I can imagine it only in times of great duress. And <laughs> other than that, uh, I feel like it becomes ellipses for me. As, I mean, here's the thing, right? I think, I think there's something about Jack where anytime something difficult comes up or something tender or something important, with rare exceptions, he just sort of like elides it. He just puts an ellipsis in there and doesn't finish his thought. This happens with emotions. This happens with coming out. This happens with everything but hockey, more or less. And, you know, it's like, obviously sucking dick is very important to him. I think it would be hard to be so open and honest about it as it's hard to be open and honest about anything that's really important to him, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I just, I like the idea that he sort of course corrects or he corrects himself. Like, Biddy's not even listening. Like, it's not even clear that Biddy is even hearing what Jack is saying. It also sounds like he wants to depersonalize it. Like, it doesn't matter that Kent won the Stanley Cup. It matters that the aces who are an expansion team won the Stanley cup. But of course he's inherently comparing himself to Kent Parson. Like Kent won a cup with an expansion team. So I could too. Right. Exactly. And in fact, I mean, this is another really smart, obviously the reason Gozi chose to use expansion teams that didn't exist at the time, although Seattle and Vegas both exist now, both of these hockey teams exist now with much worse names, unfortunately, than the Las Vegas Aces and the Seattle Schooners. But it sets up this great parallel, right? Like, again, as, as with Dex's comment about Ken and Hazapalooza, this sets Kent up as a further narrative parallel or antagonistic force or foil in some way to Jack, because if they're both on expansion teams, they both are in a similar position in terms of the establishment of those teams within the league, right? So it, it further sets them up in a narrative parallel that will, you know, never go anywhere, but starts really strong. Yeah. And of course, if you've been reading along and paying attention, maybe you remember like, oh, Kent, that sounds familiar. And then you click back a couple of strips and you're like, oh, Dex mentioned this guy. And right. you're starting to put it together a little bit. Then again, if you're not a careful reader, 
you may eventually go back and reread the comic and realize like, oh, okay. So yeah, it's, that's what foreshadowing is. It's, it's, it would be good writing. However, as it stands, all of this like something wicked this way comes type build up based on the way that the comic reads now in completion as it's finished and also more recent statements from like 2019 and 2020 about what the function of Ken Parson even was within the comic if you didn't intend for this character to be important and he didn't have any kind of larger antagonistic role to play within the comic than merely his arc here contained within the first semester of year two. Then why did you waste time and energy putting this in? If nothing else, if you want to make the charitable reading that, oh, people who are into Kent Parson and thought he was supposed to have a larger role in the story are wrong, he was never meant to be a bigger or more important or more significant character, and he was never intended to do anything else within the comic. Then at least you have to acknowledge, or it would be right to acknowledge, that people are making that interpretation because this stuff is in here, and based on everything we know about like how foreshadowing functions within a work of art, we're effectively being like misdirected intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, I don't have much to add besides resignation, but yes, I agree. Like, just to be clear, and I don't mean to like dwell on this for too long because we're about to have <laughs> just all, all the parts we can eat. <laughs> Somebody can eat anyway. There's not a lot of this kind of foreshadowing in the comic. No, there's not. I mean, this is what I mean when I say this is such good and interesting writing, right? For much of the comic, we're kind of tripping along in Biddy's wake, and we have a vague sense of what will happen because, like, I know how narratives work. I understand he will graduate from college. I understand he will win something in the hockey team because otherwise, why is he part of a hockey team? Or he will lose something in the hockey team, and it will be important. I understand that, you know, he'll bake a pie, and it'll do something. There are certain things you expect, but for the most part, the comic isn't doing a lot of careful or meticulous guiding of readers' attention, if you know what I mean. For the most part, the comic is kind of doing what it does and allowing readers to read it as they will without kind of the the using narrative structures or conceits or whatever you want to call them to give the reader enough information that the reader starts to draw conclusions for themselves without the comic immediately resolving whatever the issue is. And for me, this is like one of my favorite things about reading because for me, this feels interactive. Like when I feel like I'm being reached out to by a text because of something like really smart foreshadowing, right? For me, that's a, that's a moment where the text and I and the author all interact together and that's really, really cool. And it's really gratifying as a reader. That doesn't happen very often in Check Please. In fact, this might be the only time that it happens with efficacy. I would say maybe a little bit with whiskey, we get like the tiniest bit of this. I think that's it. Those are the only two ones that are coming to my mind immediately. There are a couple other moments which feel interactive through dramatic irony, but they're, they're also really fleeting. So this is like the most successful version of this kind of activity between author, text, and reader. And it's really too bad because, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. But 
it's really smart. That transparent speech bubble where Jack corrects himself is like some of the smartest writing I think we've seen thus far. It's so good. You mean like the couple of oblique mentions of the lax bros and like your three end up feeding whiskey's yeah. story such as it is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that just doesn't feel as like satisfying. Well, it's not because the story, so the Kent story obviously doesn't go anywhere, but it goes halfway. Like there is like half of a really interesting narrative in Kent and it gets derailed because of various reasons that I'm sure we'll like lose our minds about in about a year or whatever. But we get enough of the Kent story that there's like some juice that I want to sip up. <laughs> this is horrible. I'm sorry. Would you say you want to suck it down with a hose? I may, I may. I think, uh, I think a straw would be a little more manageable than a hose, but you know, yeah, make do. Anyway, okay, listen. I mix, I mix that up because there's a fucking South Park joke about Cartman giving somebody a blowjob and the punchline is like, suck it out of a hose, suck it out of a hose. Let's just okay. move on. Oh boy, oh boy. All right. I think the problem with whiskey, like I think I was very excited for wherever the whiskey thing was going because I felt... I was like, I've been interested in the lacrosse chads the whole time. I think they're like a funny and interesting sort of side group. And I thought that that confrontation was going like anywhere. Uh, it wasn't. But I thought that it was and I was really psyched about it. But unlike with Kent, we get way less information about Whiskey than Kent, even though Whiskey is actively on the team and is like, at least in some ways, supposedly a main character. We actually know nothing about him except that he's not like super jazzed about Biddy and he's like, oh, cool, Jack Zimmerman. Like, like we don't know anything about this guy. So there's no satisfaction when he has an, uh, some kind of completion to his arc because I was never invested in his arc. I was invested enough in his arc that like, yes, I have, I have written fanfic about it. And yes, I may again, like a little bit because it's pretty, uh, there's something really funny happening there, but it's not integral to the story of the comic. Whereas Kent does feel because he's such an important part of Jack's character arc and Jack's emotional arc, or at least is implied to be, I guess he wasn't and I was wrong all along, but you know, like supposedly he could have been, and it seems here that he was. So I get really invested in that. And then I get enough information about who Kent is. I see enough interaction between Kent and characters I care about. I see some like interesting drawings that I zoomed in and was like, is that spit? My God. And we'll get into that next time. That I got really invested in him and figuring out what was going on with him. So long story short, I think it's most effective with Kent because we have the most stake in Kent as a character. Like we know the most about him. He interacts the most or his interactions are discussed the most versus whiskey or, or these other moments of like vague foreshadowing or dramatic irony. And I don't know, there's something really compelling about this parallel, this narrative parallel. Like I know how narratives work, right? I understand narrative patterns. When someone presents me a foil who's like mysterious, I want to know more about him because usually foils, you know, do something in a narrative. I guess. Well, not every narrative, but you know, good ones. So then we have this little, like, I don't know, flirty moment or something. I think you and I have sort of different interpretations of this or different readings of this. To me, what's going on here is Biddy has a crush on Jack. So everything that Jack fucking says, he thinks is amazing and is just like gazing in awe at him. Jack is talking about himself. And Biddy is asking questions about him. And that's realistic because when you have a crush on somebody, you probably are like, oh, you're so interesting. Tell me more. 
or whatever. And that's relatable. And I feel like that's pretty common, but they're not really having like a conversation where it's like, you know, an equal back and forth between them. It doesn't demonstrate to me what's going on here that Jack is really into or indeed even interested in Biddy, other than the fact that Biddy is like a willing audience. And I think that's really realistic too. Like there is a certain type of person who is really into the fact that somebody is into them or really gets a lot of satisfaction out of talking about themselves to somebody who clearly is enjoying it. But I don't convincingly read this as a sign that these are two people who are into each other. And their little moment where they like almost bump into each other, I don't think that's cute either. I disagree, but I also need to get more water. So I'll be right back. All right. Well, while you're gone, I'll say this. I do really enjoy it when it's mentioned that Jack's ass is huge. You know... Who doesn't? It's a nice reminder. Okay, I've got seltzer and I'm ready to rumble. Also like, I also like that Jack knows that Jack's ass is big. Yeah, I do enjoy that. So I read this moment slightly different from you. I don't read the conversation on either side of this little pie dance, as it were, as especially flirtatious. I agree that Biddy is asking Jack about himself and Jack is obliging. I think this is a common thread with Jack. He's pretty self-interested. So I'm kind of delighted about that. Yeah, it's like Biddy is gazing at Jack, thinking about Jack. Jack is gazing out the window, thinking about Jack. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of a really interesting dynamic. But for me, this blue panel where Biddy is carrying flour in a paper sack and Jack is holding the pie in one hand. They're trying to get around each other in their fairly small kitchen. The middle column, there's three columns, there's three images in this panel. The middle column is like maybe the most romantic column in the entirety of Check, Please. (laughs) Biddy says, excuse you, but my kitchen is no place for checking. And to which Jack replies, dot, 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 your kitchen. And then Biddy says, well, the kitchen. Now move your big, um, and Jack says, my big. And that moment for me does read as flirtatious. I can hear it in my head. It sounds like real words that real people would say, which is a rarity for this comic. So I'm very excited about that. And there's something in the way that the characters are drawn here that like has always stuck with me that I feel genuinely is fond. I mean, the look in Jack's eyes, despite his crazy pupils, is not wolf eyes. It's like, Tender dog eyes, but not puppy eyes. Like, we're not there. But at least he's domesticated. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's something in this moment where I really feel like chemistry is effectively being drawn between these characters in a way that I very rarely feel. And the follow-up of, like, shooting Jack in the face with uh, with Flower, I, I think, is, like, funny enough. You know, what? why not? But there's something about this moment, and this is an example of how this comic is super subjective, right? For me, this moment does read as flirtatious. Like, it reads as Jack coming out of his own head for a hot second. He's still talking about himself, you'll notice, but he's talking about himself in a way that feels collaborative with Biddy. Like, they're both acknowledging that his ass is huge here, and this is like, (laughs) this is like their moment of flirtation. So for me, it is a bit flirtatious. Then as you move past this moment, as they do go past each other, Jack then, 
he looks more friendly than he often looks, which is nice, but he does then sort of just like return to talking about himself. And at that point, it's no longer that flirtatious to me. But there's that little dance around the pie. For me, I don't know. I read it in a way that makes me think like, oh, these people like each other. And I remember feeling this when I first read the comic and probably my feelings now are still impacted by how I first felt. Because when I first saw this strip, I was so beside myself with excitement. Like when this strip showed up and I was like, oh my God, they're friends. They're friends. Like that was really exciting for me as a reader. So definitely that's impacting how I feel about it. Well, how do you feel about the fact that they both have giant, stupid anime hands? Uh, To be honest, I never thought about it. Now that I'm looking at it, you know, I still don't think they're that anime because of those square tipped fingers. You know, it's not, this is not a clamp manga I'm looking at here. It's not an elegant taper. Just really revealed something about my middle school reading habits, everybody. Yeah, I, I actually don't know what that is. All I know is that some like Japanese fan artists in the South Park fandom give Cartman like very large hands and that's what their hands, especially Biddy's hand as it's flowing flower. Uh, reminds me of here. Wait, sorry? I'm sorry. I just, they give Cartman like the like muscular, like veined, like manga hands? No, just that they're like proportionately much larger. I've seen some anime hands in my day. I read Legal Drug, if anyone's into that. Anyway. All right, well, let me rephrase it in language that we can all find unobjectionable. Their hands are drawn too big. Amen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I just had some sort of like real experience over here. Yeah, their hands are pretty big, but it didn't bother me at the end. Maybe I've just like lost my goodwill toward this comic, which is interesting because we're literally about to get to like some of the strips that I've been like, oh boy, I can't believe we have to go through all of year one just to get to this. However, to me, this doesn't read like they're having a conversation. It sounds like they've had dialogue written for them. I don't observe people actually acting like this. I think it's flirting coded. It's like flirting is being encoded in this exchange. I don't think Biddy would actually cut himself off before saying, you're big ass. And then if he did, I don't think Jack would be like, my big question mark. I think he'd just be like, ugh, get out of my way. Like, this isn't how people actually interact in the real world. So I understand that it's part of, you know, a boys love comic about two characters, one of whom takes legal drugs. But it seems as though whatever excitement I previously had about this comic has rearranged itself. And now this just like doesn't charm me and it doesn't strike me as verisimilitudinous in a way that's effective. But I know it's supposed to be flirty. Like, I know it's like, uh, you know, it's like a scene out of like some rom-com shit where it's like, blah, 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 uh, and like, you know, he throws some like flower, uh, you know, and then it's like they both have flour on them and it's like, ah, ha, 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 you know, uh, okay. I actually don't disagree with you that it's stilted. However, I used to work in a place where people would date each other. And so I would see people who were dating each other in our workplace. It was a nightmare, by the way, everybody. Like, don't worry, it was terrible. And all the couples were straight. So that's a particular dynamic too, that people in the relationship were straight. And also the relationship was between a man and a woman. That's what I mean by that. And there is a real, weirdly stilted kind of flirting that I would like, 
unwillingly over here when people were in the first stages of their romance in my workplace where they were imitating the patter of media flirtation but it was in real life and i get what you mean that this is stilted like it is a little stilted but i have heard people flirt in ways that remind me of this so for me it it, it does kind of like even though I, i agree with you that it's not without any kind of affectation I have actually heard people flirt with this kind of affectation in real life. And so I guess, I guess for me, it's still, there is a kind of ver- verisimilitude there, even though I, I do see what you mean about it being kind of stilted. And I also do think it's cute. I guess I still have more goodwill towards this than maybe you do. I'm excited about a lot of things in this comic. The Jack and Biddy romance is obviously like not it. I love the Jack and Biddy romance now. To be clear, does that mean that I think they're made for each other and they're going to be happy forever? It does not. But I am really invested in their relationship developing and then like, what happens after that, huh? Well, I mean, it's because what happens after that is so just like, what the fuck? That I, looking back on the rest of this, I'm just like, I don't know. I just, it's, it's not charming. It's like, I can't buy into the artifice of a romance that feels surface level i guess i guess there's part of me that is still delighted by it i mean i also have like more appreciation for really shitty romance i think than you do so that that could just be things that we have different preferences for but i'll also say i think part of what i like about jack and biddy and part of why i'm really fascinated by their trajectory is the shift like i'm really interested in how these two people could genuinely like each other but also kind of be circumstantially into each other which we can kind of discuss more. We discussed briefly before and could discuss again more later, but I'm really into how people can to like really genuinely like each other. And then the demands of relationship, just like they just like crack under the pressure. And so for me to really enjoy how crazy it gets, there's, I think I, I think thinking that they really are genuinely into each other at the beginning of it, like intensifies my pleasure in the reading later. So then we get a reference to uncle Mario. Oh yeah. So in case you don't know who this guy is, Mario Mario Lemieux, known as Le Magnifique, as you might say, is uh, hockey royalty. And this is further evidence that Jack is indeed the hockey prince. Mario Lemieux was a longtime Pens player and also Pens owner. I think he might be the only person who's won as both a the Stanley Cup as both a player and an owner. He has a bunch of records. He's at the time of his retirement, I think he he was the seventh highest scorer in NHL history, something like that. I mean, he's he's a pretty big deal and he's really well known if you like know anything about hockey. I would not classify myself as a hockey history expert and I still know who he is, even though he was playing before I really started watching hockey. Sidney Crosby lived in his house for a while when Sidney Crosby first joined the Pens. So because Sidney Crosby is also kind of hockey royalty, there was like a interesting thing happening there. We know from Bad Bob Zimmerman that Bad Bob Zimmerman, Jack Zimmerman's father, won the cup with the Penguins in 1991. Mario Lemieux was also on that team. So they would have been teammates. So yeah, I mean, this is probably a guy that Jack has known his whole life because of course he was at that game, I guess, and uh, they would have met. Also, yeah, the relationship between Mario Lemieux and Sidney Crosby is familial. I looked at this story from 2009 from NHL.com 
when the, the Pens were, were playing against Detroit. One of the things Lemieux said about Crosby was he's more like a son than an employee. So, of course, we remember that there's this, like, bad Bob, Jack tension sort of thing. There is maybe not, like, an exact parallel, but there's a similar sort of, like, I don't know, hockey protege relationship kind of, like, mirrored in this guy. And, you know, the famous younger hockey superstar who is one of the models for Jack's character. That's all for context. Yeah, and I will also say this just means something about who Jack is in the hockey world, the kind of personalities and people in the hockey world he had access to by virtue of his father. His opportunities are are from his skill, but they are certainly also because of who he knows, right? It's definitely a combination. And this is just something to keep, keep in mind about Jack. Yeah, so in terms of like talking to this guy to get advice about his selection, like very few even like number one draft prospects are going to have the same kind of access to the same kinds of people that Jack has. So it's not just that he's really skilled at hockey. It's this is like what connections are. Not just that like, oh, your dad is famous, so he's going to call up his famous friends and get you on a hockey team or, you know, get you higher in the draft or something like that. It's that the advice and the confidence building that's boosting you up is beyond that which other people are getting as well. Right. And the expertise. I mean, if you think about like Mario Lemieux is the owner of the pens, you know, he's going to have a certain level of knowledge of who else is being drafted, who might be a good fit for Jack, like what kind of players different people are looking for. Like he's like, it's insight beyond what almost anybody else would, would have. So it's just worth keeping in mind about when Jack gets beat up on the ice later, you know, this is part of why. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying is it's effectively like Jack has more resources than presumably anybody else going into the NHL next year. And possibly, like, for a very long time. So then Biddy mentions that his audience has been asking about his love life. And, you know, I look at Biddy and I think, well, Biddy is very boring. I don't care about his love life. You just heard me. But maybe his audience would. I will just briefly say, I was not deep in the YouTube world anymore by 2014. I had mostly gotten tired of it and and was no longer, like... (laughs) A nerd fighter. Oh God, this is really revealing a lot of what I was into when I was a teenager. Anyway, and nonetheless, I think even though he might be a little boring, I think in 2014, an openly gay YouTuber who was semi-popular and had a niche, a niche, oh my God, how do you say that word in English? Niche? Niche? I don't know. A niche audience. Either. Okay, thank you. A niche audience who watches him for his like good baking or whatever. I really do think he would receive pretty prying questions about his personal life and requests for advice. That was pretty common. I also think that this is especially true. So 2014 is around the time when YouTube, it's not that there weren't professional YouTubers, there were, but there was a shift happening in sort of like broader internet culture where social media like YouTube, like Twitter and so on and so forth. This is like around the time when it really stopped being primarily like weirdos on the internet and became really a professional tool that everybody needed. And subsequently, this was around the time that YouTube started getting really, really, really slick. People started making like 
a lot of money off of YouTube. More people started making money off of YouTube. It became like a real professional path that had steps along the way as opposed to sort of like figuring it out as you go along. This is my understanding and it's limited obviously. And I'm also being really simple about it. But I still think this is before it became full, full professional YouTube of the past few years. And so I still think like with Biddy's smaller, more intimate audience, at a time when intimacy was less openly transactional than it is now on YouTube, it would have been very likely that he would have been getting this sort of question. I think especially for an openly gay YouTuber, like, I don't know, man, 2014 is not 2020. And it was pretty different. Even then it was pretty different than it is now in terms of like the way people talked about queerness online, the way people were open or not open about their sexuality. So I could see this happening. But from all the pieces of Viddy's vlog we see, like, would it be interesting? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure about that. I mean, I think YouTube personalities had sort of established themselves and started to monetize by 2014, certainly. I also think that there were some, like, fairly prominent, like, queer YouTubers at the time. Not that I was, like, super paying attention, but there were at least, like, a couple people who I was aware of. I also think that this is not what's being intended here, but I do think it's interesting that we've talked a bit about the kind of parasocial relationship that Ngozi has with her fan base, and I don't get the impression that Biddy has, at this point, at least a super popular, hugely monetizable blog, or vlog, rather. However, certainly his viewership is invested in him as a person and invested in what's going on with his life equal to or perhaps more so than the thing that his vlog is purportedly about, which is basically just like, you know, baking tips and cooking videos. And we've discussed this, like I said, but this is something that genuinely happens with people who market themselves, regardless of what it is that they're supposedly doing on their platform, they effectively become the product. So that's an aspect of why Biddy's audience is interested in his love life or lack thereof. I do, something kind of bothers me about the like weird, like self-pitying way he kind of like addresses this. But um, yeah, that also I think would be something that probably endeared him to his audience. And yeah, I, I mean, it's obvious that the kind of career Biddy has, as much as I think the comic and or the author would want us to think that it's based purely on Biddy's like innate talent as a baker and the success of his recipes or whatever. I'm sure most of his audience is built upon, you know, Biddy as an aspirational brand. You know, you too, if you only owned X, Y, and Z, looked like this and produced things such as what Biddy's producing could have a good ordered life. And of course, when you're doing something like making vlogs on YouTube, I mean, 
like it's all performance it's all packaged it's all edited to convey something very specific like this is not new stuff like all of this is going to be effectively curated to project a certain kind of image a certain kind of idea of who biddy is and in each of his videos he's going to be telling like a little story about himself and so replying to this particular question, I almost said ask, in this particular way is part of a story that Biddy is telling about himself and who he is and how he wants his videos to be interpreted. Like, he could very easily just, it's like in a couple different strips now, he started the strip by saying something like, I know people are only here to find out about my cooking, but I just can't help but say a couple words about X, Y, and Z, even though I know people are only here for the cooking. And it's like, okay, obviously you know that they're not. And if you really only wanted to keep it focused on cooking, like you just would, because you have total control over all of the material that you are putting out. Like you literally are editing these videos. Like, you, Sully, you are putting forward exactly what it is that you want people to get. So just the sort of editorial decision that he makes to include this thing about he's never had much of a love life. And oh, people are asking. I mean, part of what he's doing is he's indicating to his audience that people are interested in his love life. Like, he's telling people, like, oh, you know, it's so wild to me that people are so interested in who I am. Like, that's basically what he's saying. And it's like, if you really just wanted to make it about, like, you know, cobbler and bullshit, you would just not include any of this at all. And it's serving his purpose. It's probably, like, growing his popularity, even though he probably only has, like, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand, like, subscriptions or like hits per video, he probably sees like over time a gradual increase in popularity and understands that like most of his interactions are coming from questions like this rather than people being like, listen, do you think I should use European style butter with a higher fat content? Is it really that much better? It's so much more expensive. Like, that would be the stuff that he was producing if he really only cared to, like, engage with that kind of content. But he probably understands that, like, that is nowhere near as popular as, like, my little old me and the interesting boys I know, or, like, whatever. Oh, yeah. And I wish that the comic had spent any time at all deciding what it wanted to say about YouTube. Like, it actually doesn't want to say anything about the vlog because we it, there's like no commentary at all the vlog as we discussed before like might as well not exist for all that it impacts Biddy's life except for at the very very end like there's just nothing there's no commentary about vlogging about the internet about parasocial relationships in the context of the comic itself and i wish that there had been some thought about it because well it would be interesting wouldn't it um but <laughs> but anyway I agree with your assessments about this whole situation. I will say, like, I I don't think that Biddy is meant to be super monetizable either. I think his profile online skyrockets after a certain event that we'll get to, you know, at the end of year three. And that's when it becomes actually monetizable in a meaningful way. But I still think that there was a certain amount of maybe 
it's not that there isn't prurience about queer lives still, but I think that in 2014, the sort of like online escapism slash curiosity slash prurience, for lack of a better word, or voyeurism or something into queer lives online was different than it is now. Like it was a different context. There was a different kind of like way of thinking about them or something. This is my impression. And I could see where Biddy being like both aspirational and gay, like I could see that being like a major part of the the draw of his channel, if that makes sense, in a way that might not be true in 2020 in the same way. And, and that would be drawing people to ask him about his personal life. The thing that this reminds me of, I will not name names, however, the thing that Biddy is doing here really reminds me of a certain kind of Tumblr a certain kind of really popular Tumblr where people are able to sort of like build myths about themselves and their skills by strategically using asks or strategically building friendships with like other popular bloggers. Um, and it's, this is not just on Tumblr. This is just like this, the place I most happen to be on, but it also happens on every other kind of social media where you build a narrative about yourself through like strategic employment of other people's admiration of you. And you just like, sort of like, Oh, little old me. Well, I'm nothing, but this person said I was the best person and I'm friends with this celebrity and I do this thing. And this person is like, you know, supporting my work or whatever. And, um, and I thought that was really funny because it gives me insight into who Biddy might be and how much of a nightmare he is. Yeah, thank you. Who are we thinking of? Oh, you know, I am actually thinking of Beep. Oh, you're thinking of Beep. I am. But also I'm thinking of my friend Beep, who, who leveraged her Tumblr about Neil Gaiman's dog into like a friendship with Neil Gaiman and like other things like that. Well, I don't know who that is, but I refrain from commenting on my friend Beep. Oh, you know who else I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Beep. And I'm thinking of Beep. Wasn't Beep one of the Big Bang Press people? Yeah, Beep was my friend. And then I think stopped being my friend because like I wasn't internet popular enough to be friends with her. Well, so too with me and Beep, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Similar, yeah. Beep wrote a high school AU. <laughs> And then called it the best high school AU ever written. I mean, she didn't use those words, but she basically implied, I don't remember how she said it, but she implied that no one else would ever have to write a high school AU again because she had written like the pinnacle of the high school AU. And people believed her. This was like effective marketing for her. I don't know. Oh, well, I don't like her because her podcast is boring and stupid. I Unlike like, this podcast. Which Beep told me was the best podcast she'd ever listened to. Well, we're not going to leave any of that in, are we? All right, anyway. I don't know, you could. Just bleep it all out. That'd be pretty funny. Let people go on the hunt for who we're talking about. Um, okay, finally we get to the last panel. And I hate how the last panel is drawn. I do think it's clever that he's wearing the same clothes and he's still covered in flour. So it's like, you know, he like ran right upstairs and like recorded this blog. But something about like the way that his mouth is visible between his hands is like really ugly to me. It doesn't look well drawn. Like I wish that his anime hands were covering his entire face. They could because they're giant, you know? Like, ugh, so ugly. I never was bothered by it, but I respect it. I have a couple of questions about this panel. No, I don't. I have a comment and then a question. My comment is that 
I think this 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 panel is very pathetic in sort of like all meanings of the term like Biddy looks sad and also like my pathos has been activated you know I, I remember seeing this as a young person who by a young person you know however many years ago this was six years ago and being like oh Biddy I get it I've been there buddy like it's rough it's rough out there I will say that now I find it slightly less impactful than I used to, I guess because I know that like it's fine and Jack's not straight and whatever. What I'm curious about is what did Jack think when Biddy was like, I have to go. I can't listen to you talk about yourself anymore. Give me a second. And then like runs upstairs to record his blog. Uh, I'm curious about that. I wonder if he didn't actually run out, but like... It's just sort of like once they finished up, like once the pie was in the oven, which it looks like it's basically done. So I don't know if he like fled the scene, although that would actually give him and Jack something, something in common because Jack, Jack, known scene flair. Um, I prefer to imagine that, but he's like, I have to go. And he just, just runs. A marriage where both parties are just constantly fleeing the room. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love it. All their fights end with both of them just like storming into different bedrooms. That's why they need a really big house so that they have enough doors to slam. They always slam it in unison. They tell their therapist this and they're like, this is how we know we're really on the same page so that we slam the doors at the same time. A cacophony of door slamming inside the Biddle Zimmerman marriage. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of the sentiment is expressed here, you know, I don't want to say everybody, but my guess is like the vast majority of people have been in some sort of romantic situation that they viewed to be like hopeless and or terminal. So yeah, obviously like that's relatable. Probably I think most people like get that. He obviously didn't fall for a straight boy. He seems to have very bad gaydar. Arguably none. I will say... Jack gives out a sort of confusing signal, doesn't he? Kent, uh, I mean the aces, you know? It's dirty. Obviously, if he hadn't corrected Kent to the aces, it all would have clicked into place. So it's a good thing that he, like, reversed course on that. But I want to say something about, like, the aesthetics of, like, queer interiority or longing or something. But I, for whatever reason don't care to give that interpretation to this particular comic. Well, I think that it, I think when I first read it, all these many years ago, I did have this sense of that feeling. I think it was mitigated by Ngozi's constant reassurance that these two guys were gonna make out. And I think that that's part of the problem. I mean, it's both comforting because if you view this work in conversation with other works about queerness and how this one's going to have a happy ending, it could be comforting to have the reassurance of the author that like, no, this time Jack isn't going to get cancer and die, you know, or whatever. Um, Jack isn't going to like take all of his Xanax and, you know, like end it. Um, he already tried, it didn't work. So don't worry, it won't happen again. Ha ha, you know? Like I think there can be a certain level of comfort there. But I will also say that that mitigation lessens the impact. I want to be here in this moment with Biddy. I too have had crushes on inappropriate people, sometimes who were straight. And 
that didn't work out well for me. Like I understand completely this feeling of like hopelessness and sort of like, especially when you're coming to terms with who you are, like this is a typical, I also think this is like very much like a fanfic trope, like, oh no, I've fallen in love with a straight guy. What am I going to do? Oh, but the straight guy's actually not straight. Ha ha. You know, this is like a pretty common trope. It's very Stan Kyle. Oh, is it? Very good to know. Yeah, it is. Is Stan the one who people think is straight, typically? Thanks for asking, Tomato. This just took a wrong turn down eight different alleys. You did it to yourself. Good job. Yes. So Stan is traditionally construed as straight or more like traditionally like masculine. On South Park, he has demonstrated like a greater or at least more enduring interest in like football when a very early episode about them being on a peewee football team aired he was the quarterback and everybody in south park was sort of looking to him to be like a local sports hero figure he also on south park has a girlfriend he's dating wendy The extent to which he's dating this, like, other nine-year-old girl is pretty limited. Like, the main joke is that they are children, so they call each other boyfriend and girlfriend, but they barely interact, and it's kind of like an in-name only thing, which is keeping in keeping with, like, how sort of, you know, third graders, fourth graders are about that kind of thing for the most part. So in a lot of, like... Typical tropey South Park fanfics set in high school, written between like 2006 and 2015. This was sort of like the main dominant narrative that Stan was dating Wendy and Kyle had like, you know, a terminal unrequited crush on him, even though their relationship was very close and very flirty seeming and the other characters made a lot of you know, observations about how it seemed that they were actually dating each other. Then there would be some sort of tension between them that led to some sort of conflict. And then ultimately Stan would be like, actually, I'm not straight. I love you too. And then they would dot, 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 whatever, depending on the fanfic. And sometimes it was that Stan realized he was gay or sometimes he'd realize he was bi. A fair amount of the time it would be like, you know, I'm not gay, but like only you because you're different and special or something. And that happened over and over and over again. Do I think you should keep all of this into the episode? Yeah, obviously. It's just like high quality content about South Park fanfic. I wrote this story one time. It was the very first story I tried to write in South Park fandom, and it's not good. Certainly don't write it, but the conceit I put on it was that all of the boys in their grade at, like, South Park High School or Park County High School were gay except for Stan. So, indeed, I was trying to deconstruct a trope and also put a lampshade on the trope that like, oh, you can't have a fanfic where everyone is gay. But then in the end, obviously Stan gets with Kyle anyway. And I, if I remember correctly, what happened in this fic that I wrote over 10 years ago 
you know, I think he, I think he gives like a, a speech about being like anti-label or something like that. I should look that up, actually. Say, say your piece. I'll go look it up. I'm going to read that. Um, it's a bad, it's, it's like, when I say it's a bad fic, I'm not just being bashful. Like, obviously there's good ideas in it. Like, it's, I, I don't think it came out of nowhere. I think, you know, for the context, like, I'm, I'm pleased with, you know, as a first fanfic, like I'd never written fanfic before, or indeed, you know, very much fiction in this mode at all. It's not like a bad concept around which to write a fic, but also, yeah, I mean, I was like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like a child, but I was pretty young and it was like my first fanfic. So based on whatever you think my fanfic is now, subtract like 10 years and whatever amount of like accordant practice comes along with it and that's the quality of the fanfic. I understand I wasn't meaning to suggest it was secretly a masterpiece although like maybe I don't know but uh but you've awakened in me a soft spot for Stan Kyle that I've that I've had for a long time now so anyway um I mean like Stan here's the thing about Stan Kyle and I realize we're we're in a check please uh, podcast right now. So here's what I'll say. I don't have an OTP for Check Please. Like, I'm interested in fanfic or like I'm interested in like, you know, pairings or stories about like almost all of these pairings, like Jack and Biddy, Jack and Parse, Biddy and Parse, all three of them bring in some others. It's a five way. I don't care. Like, all of it is interesting. And I feel like Anybody could write anything, and in theory, I could be into it. But I don't inherently believe that any of these characters are, like, soulmates who belong to each other. Like, I think I was talking about that even during this episode. Like, it's not something that I really feel passionately about. Like, oh, Jack and Biddy have to be together. They're my OTP. I truly believe that, like, these two characters are in some way metaphysically bound to each other. There is no other version of their story that wouldn't include them being together, getting together. I think that their romance is highly contextual. Like they're living in this house, being forced into each other's lives every day at a time when it's equally appealing and convenient for them to end up in a relationship together. If they met in some other context, some other place, I think none of the same elements would be in place and they would never be drawn to each other. Stan and Kyle, I feel the exact opposite way about. That's not to say that I think their relationship would be good, but I feel like the premise of South Park is that it's these two kids who grew up in like exceedingly insane circumstances that has basically like psychosexually bound them together in a way that like there is no two version of these characters that could exist without the other one. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, we'll talk about it later. Okay, let's get back to check, please. Uh, I don't think I have that much else to add to this, like, okay, Biddy's sad, it's fine. So just to kind of wrap towards the end, uh, I'm gonna mention the blog post. This blog post is really long, so I'm not gonna go through the whole thing. Um, but there's a couple kind of interesting things in it. One of them, which I just want to touch on, Ngozi includes a lot of tweets, which I think you're gonna talk about a bit. She does a lot of explanation of what's going on in the class. Um, there is continual back and forth, you know, in the call and response 
construction of the blog post, there is a conversation. And in this conversation, Ngozi does a lot of explanation. There are a lot of questions like, why does Biddy like Jack all of a sudden, right now? To which Ngozi responds, Biddy is very good at suppressing things. I'm sure the first time he met Jack, an interesting moment, he turned off that part of his brain that would allow him anything other than a casual appreciation of Jack's uh, character design. Plus, Jack is his teammate and his captain, and it's Biddy's first time on an all-male team, and Jack spent most of Biddy's frog year trying to glare Biddy into oblivion. Biddy never thought that they would be friends. But it was a long summer, and Jack is actually a very funny guy when he terminates perfectcanadianhockeyrobot.exe. Interesting that he's very funny. Don't know that I've ever seen it, with the obvious exception of Hazapalooza's snark. But this conversation continues. Like, there's so much where the call is some kind of question about Biddy's feelings, and then the answer is Ngozi kind of, like, winking at the audience, as she often does, and reassuring in in some way that these two are going to end up together. And I'm just really interested in that because it goes on for so long and there's a lot of explanation about what's happening between these characters that we don't see in the comic itself. Obviously the blog counts as a paratext and if you're really invested in the comic, you know, you're you're going to read the blog post. I certainly did, but not everybody who reads the comic is going to read the blog posts. Just as not everybody who reads the comic is going to read the Twitter. And missing these components, presumably you would still want some aspect of what's available in those pieces, especially the blog post, which is not even arguing that it's part of the narrative. You would want that to be available to the reader. You would want, you would hopefully want your reader to be able to understand how the relationship is developing between these characters without like telling them explicitly outside of the context of the narrative. So I know that we've talked about this before and I'm sorry for beating a dead horse if it feels that way, but I just think this particular blog post is really interesting in how much explanation and exposition, like so much exposition is happening in this completely adjacent text, which is not even pretending to be in the voice of the character. That's pretty wild. So there's also, an entry in the blog post that says, hey, do I actually need to read the Twitter? I feel like I'm missing out on things. Hey dude, I'm doing multi-platform storytelling. You can read the entire comic without looking at the Twitter. You can also read the whole comic without looking at Ask a Wellies or blog posts. But okay, maybe I should officially revise my stance. If you want that full check please experience, you totally should read the Twitter. You've got a clearer picture of the whole narrative I'm trying to tell, and hey, you might just have some fun, but yo, I'm not the boss. I'm merely a comic artist offering a multi-tiered user experience. I feel like Johnson would say at this point, Roz, choose your adventure, ETA. You don't even need to sign up for the Twitter. You can just bookmark the page and check it every like week. Also, super important events will be cross-posted to this Tumblr. Seriously, no big deal, right? Right? So what's irksome about this to me is this. I wish he would just say, yes, if you want the full story I'm telling, also read the Twitter. That indeed is the point of multi-platform storytelling. The idea is, while the Twitter is actively updating, so essentially for, I don't know, five-sixths of year two, 
the story of Check Please is being told on two different platforms. They are equal parts of the comic. Like, they are equal parts of the story. It's confusing. And it's confusing for a couple different reasons. One of them is because she didn't start telling the story this way. She only introduced it after year one had ended. She introduced it after Biddy had finished his freshman year in like real time. It actually started like during the tail end of year one. But most of the people who have been following the comic from the beginning, or indeed even people who start reading the comic, have no clue that this Twitter is being introduced. Like, if you're like me, and you start reading this after year two, just like on the Tumblr, and you're just clicking through the strips, or indeed if you're flipping through the book, there's no indication that this is happening. So it's confusing for that reason. It's also confusing because on the other end of, of year two, the Twitter stops functioning in this way. She continued writing tweets of a sort, but they weren't being revealed in real time. And at a certain point, they're not even being posted to the Twitter anymore. She just composed them and put them in the chirp book. So it's a format that's really limited in its use over the life of the comic. So that makes it confusing. And then it's further made confusing by the fact that she's basically like not committing to telling people how she wants them to consume her text, which is so weird. I mean, it makes total sense in a way. Like this is somebody who very badly wants their story to be appreciated and also doesn't want to come across as an asshole. But Eventually, she would get to a point where she was very invested in telling people exactly how they should read the text. And more to the point, yeah, I don't know, it's your story. You don't have to be so afraid of alienating people. Like, just tell them, you know, yeah, read the Twitter. And then she goes back and she's like, you don't even have to, like, follow the Twitter. You can just look at it sometimes. It's like, listen, people know how to use the internet. I know we just talked about how 2014 was the dark ages, but it really wasn't. Like, Twitter had been around and, like, pretty mainstream for, like, eight years at that point. So it, it's not as if people don't know that they can just, like, look at a Twitter casually to catch up sometimes, even if they're not using the platform. Well, especially the people who are reading Check, Please. Like, when I said that the internet was different in 2014, you know, I'm not saying it was the 2006 internet. It was just different than 2020 internet. Twitter existed in 2006. That was the year it was invented. Right, but it was a different platform in 2006 than it was in 2014. Well, because not every journalist on the planet was on it. Whatever, you know what I'm saying. It's like a slightly different context. Anyway. No, that's who was on it in 2006. It was only journalists. Yeah, that's actually, okay, never mind. Well, I'm dumb. Anyway. Look, it's, it's, the point when, that when Twitter that, got started is not the point, obviously. The point that I'm trying to make the, is that the people who are reading Check, Please, especially, are extremely computer literate. That's how they fucking found Check, Please in the first place. It's on Tom that's all I was trying to say. I don't know. It's this weird, like, well, you can interact with the comic however you want to. It's like, yeah, look, everybody knows that. Like, everybody knows that. Like, everybody on the internet has basically grown up being taught that the internet is an a la carte experience where you do what you feel like and don't do anything else. So everything is opt-in. People are not going to feel obligated to look at the Twitter if they don't want to. At the same time, I feel like if what you want to communicate, and I do think this is what she wants to communicate, 
is that 50% of the fucking story is located in the Twitter. It is of like an equal value. The story of check please is incomplete without the tweets at this point. Just say that without couching it in this like, I don't know, whatever. Like it just, I understand. I mean, listen, like I, you know, I obviously have a different like history and like backstory than Ngozi does. So I'm not saying that our particular like insecurities are exactly the same, but yeah, it's like anytime anybody pays any attention to me at all, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this person wasted their time paying attention to me even for a couple seconds. So like, yeah, relatable. But at a certain point, if you're making an artwork, part of like learning how to own your art and like being a responsible creator is like embracing it fully and saying, these are my decisions. This is what the story is. Go here and look at it if you want the full picture. And sometimes these blog posts take this tone of like detachment from the actual project where it's like, I don't know, man, whatever, you're the reader, do whatever, I am but this author, just throwing things out into the world. And I think this eventually contributes to a lot of confusion and disagreement about how this text is supposed to be read. And I'm not saying it's the worst thing that ever happened, but I do think it becomes part of the larger story as to why the subjective elements of this text become so fucking contentious is because there's nobody there basically saying like, yeah, the tweets are canon. Like, if you want to understand the story, you should read them. And then we get this argument that happens all the time where it's like, the character development or the relationship development between Jack and Biddy isn't happening in the comic. And it's like, yeah, it obviously isn't happening in the comic. It was effectively supposed to be happening in this other medium that was supposed to be of equal weight to the comic. But I think you only get that if you're reading the comic in real time in 2014 and 2015. I think in 2020, that's a completely abstract concept. And of course, now it's like, who the fuck would want to go back and read all these tweets? I mean, I did it in 2016 because I was like, ooh, a new fandom, and I was fucking obsessed. But like, back reading a Twitter is such an incredibly unpleasant experience, especially if you're not like 1000% obsessed with something that's like your new fandom. And especially because Twitter, like a lot of micro-blogging platforms, for example, Tumblr, is a highly ephemeral medium where links decay and, like, context evaporates. Biddy was not just when he was tweeting or when Ngozi was tweeting as Biddy. Biddy was not just, you know, tweeting things in a vacuum for the duration of the year two tweets. He was interacting with people and he was linking to things and he was like responding to real world contexts. And as time goes on, the URLs like get diminished and the blogs that he was linking to go offline and the Twitters that he was reacting to like either get deleted or go private or whatever. And so the text by nature 
gets fucked up and it just becomes like not that easy to read. And I've gone back and I've looked at tweets that Biddy made in 2014 and 2015 that are clearly in response to something, but because those things can't be archived in the same way, it's like whatever the context was is totally missing. So Biddy is responding to like comments and questions that you can no longer access or at least not easily. And so it's just like a really frustrating decision that was made. And I think the fact that it was introduced late and then abandoned pretty quickly doesn't help. With the caveat that obviously this doesn't totally serve the multi-platform storytelling experiment, there are formal ways to incorporate these tweets more effectively into the text, right? Like whether it's through a curated list or whether it's through some kind of formatting that make it make the tweets more accessible than they were for much of the comic while it was updating. I mean, you can go and look at, his, at Biddy's Twitter now, but for a long time it was locked and you would just read like a, a spreadsheet of tweets on the check please Tumblr, which is like a horrible way to read tweets. There are ways to make something like attractive and interesting and feel somewhat interactive, even if it's not actually interactive. Ngozi does not take those routes. So it's clear that like this was an experiment that ended and, and that's fine. But it is frustrating because the framework is that it's required reading, but oh, but I'm not going to say that it's required reading. Oh, and now it's not required reading anymore. So it's this kind of like difficult thing to navigate. I will also say that not to get too into reading theory here, which I'm not an expert in anyway, but there are ways that you can guide and direct your reader's attention. Like this is like part of writing and most writers do this at least instinctively and then some people study it and, and talk about it. But there are things you can do to like guide your reader's eyes on the page, like truly. There are things you can do, especially in a graphic novel. Like that's what a graphic novel does. That's what comics do. They guide your eyes along the page. That is how sequencing in comics works, right? And there are all sorts of things that Ngozi could have done to visually indicate that there was more information that the reader needed or more context that the reader needed or something, even if she didn't feel comfortable saying like, hey, you should read this other platform. There could have been ways to link to it within the actual content of the comic, like maybe not on Tumblr, but on her own website for sure. Um, and on Tumblr, you could still put a link in the particular like tweets or something. I mean, there are ways to integrate these things together, even if you maintain the multi-platform. Like there are ways to guide a reader's attention, including online, not just in the formatting of a page. So there are things that, that could have been done if this, if Ngozi didn't feel comfortable saying like, you have to read these two things, there, there would at least have been ways to direct the reader's attention there within the form itself of the comic. Now I am obsessed with form, so I understand that not everyone might feel this way and, and that might not be a concern for, for all authors in the same way that I like can never stop thinking about it. And, and that's fair. But I think we can say pretty safely that like, however exciting the experiment was, because it was like during year two, I was really psyched. This is part of the reason I got back on Twitter after many years of not using it, you know, was to read these tweets and it was really exciting and, and immersive. But I think call a spade a spade, right? It was an experiment. If you wanted to veer away from tweeting as part of the story, there are ways to do that formally as well. Like Biddy saying, 
I'm really busy now. I, I can't keep up my Twitter presence anymore in the comic or something. I mean, that would have been pretty lampshady. But, you know, there are ways formally, like there are formal solutions to formal problems. And that's all. I just wish that maybe some of those had been thought about in the conception of this experiment. Because as it is, it's just pretty frustrating. Tell me about Stan and Kyle. No, okay. All yeah. right, we're done. Let's see if you have anything else to say about uh No, I've got nothing. I I gave my leg. You know, if any of you are into reading theory, read some Umberto Eco and come talk to me. I said his name crazy. That's all. Yeah, I have nothing to say about that. But what I do have to say is that it was really hard to get through this update because it's just like I'm fully anticipating just like all in crazy. And also it's almost time to do another special episode. So we'll have to think about that. Yeah, the whole time that I was looking at this comic update, which again, I do enjoy. I was thinking, oh, but soon it's going to be next comic update. I think we're going to be kind of disappointed by next comic update because it's mostly just more Jack and Pity. Yeah, but the end is going to really, well, anyway, we'll get to it. Okay, okay, we have to end this because uh, what's happening? Next time, 2.7, parse. (laughs) I've been Secret OMG. You can find me on Tumblr at C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, Camillier, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G, or on AO3 at Familiar, or on fanfiction.net as Secret OMG, S-E-K-R-I-T-O-M-G. You can find me, tomato, at tomatowrites.tumblr.com, or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. You can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com, or on Spotify, or on Podbean, or maybe someday somewhere else. I don't know, guys. Anyway, uh, have a wonderful weekend. What day is this going up? I don't know what's happening anymore. Oh, it's Friday. I think it's Friday. And may I just say, our our prayers are with the president and his family at this time. Oh, yeah. I really pray so often, and all of them are just about uh, that guy. Uh-huh. Yep. I hope somebody here doesn't get COVID, but uh, I plead the fifth about who. Anyway, I guess that's it. We want everyone to survive so they can rot in jail. Here, here. It just doesn't seem fair that my friend should have to have his leg amputated and like, you know, other people don't. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I had to go. This is insane. Goodbye. (laughs) This little one bit my arm. What a bad boy. But also he is so cute. Okay, I have to stop recording. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Oh, you're still recording?